Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the executive director of the Henry Nowen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nowen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nowen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry to audiences around the world. Each week, we endeavor to bring you a new interview with someone who's been deeply influenced by the writings of Henry Nowen, or perhaps even a recording of Henry himself. We invite you to share the daily meditations and these podcasts with your friends and family. Through them, we can continue to introduce new audiences to the writings and teachings of Henry Nowen and remind each listener, as Henry would, that they are a beloved child of God. Now, let me take a moment to introduce today's guest. Today on this podcast, I have the pleasure of interviewing Sister Helen Prejean. Sister Helen is well known around the world for her tireless work against the death penalty. I first met Sister Helen through the film based on her best-selling book titled Dead Man Walking. In the United States, Sister Helen has been instrumental in sparking a national dialogue on capital punishment and in shaping the Catholic Church's vigorous opposition to all executions. Born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Helen joined the Sisters of St. Joseph in 1957. In her memoir, River of Fire, she tells the story of her journey from childhood faith to becoming a nun, to the commitment today to be a force for social transformation. Sister Helen, I have loved your book. It's funny, it's honest, and it's very challenging. Years ago, I did a documentary series called Stories of Our Becoming, where I interviewed a variety of people, and they told me the stories of their childhood and of their lives and what shaped them. This book, River of Fire, is really the story of your becoming. Why did you call it River of Fire? Well, the river part is because life is always moving. We're always in motion. And uh, and then the fire part is to catch on fire with passion, love of the gospel. And so I begin the book with an epigraph from St. Bonaventure, ask not for understanding, ask for the fire. And so the whole story is about my awakening to justice because the gospel unfolds inside of us, you know. And so starting a childhood, Catholic family, becoming a nun, 1957, before Vatican II, and we move, the river moves, the river moves, Vatican II happened, things opened up. And then it was my struggle to understand that the gospel of Jesus was more than just about being charitable to people around me and praying for the people of the world who were suffering, but to engage in justice. And the paperback version um, has as the subtitle, On Becoming an Activist, of actually participating in history um, and not just being a bystander and watch it go by. Well, that, that does really explain to people as they're thinking about this, about this journey. I, I found it absolutely delightful. I loved your honesty. You were obviously a, a well-loved child, confident, vibrant. Yeah, I was. Uh, you know, but in, in the eighth grade, I mean, you told everybody you wanted to become the Pope or the President of the United States. I I loved yeah. the audacious nature I met there. <laughs> yeah, right. And you know that comes from being loved. Yeah. I mean, it's um, when I've been in the presence of people now, a lot of them in prison or in other places where they had such an abused childhood, I just realized it, it really humbled me because I I tried to be a loving person, but I received 
so much, Karen. I just receive so much. And um, so it's just like to let it flow through you. Again, the river image of the love. Because, you know, if you're going to stand up in front of your eighth grade class and announce <laughs> in this chirpy little voice, look, y'all, I'm either going to be the president or the pope. Uh, you go, what gives with that kid? I, I just thought it was delightful. Uh, why did you decide to become a nun? I mean, this was kind of interesting. Was that just the natural thing? You were Catholic and you were had a, a, a deep childhood faith. Was, was that what opened that door for you? Yeah, well, it was, okay, this was the 50s, you know. The whole cultural mindset of the 50s as a Catholic, you did one of two things. You either married, and that was what most people, you know, my classmates at St. Joseph Academy in Baton Rouge were talking about going to LSU, Louisiana State University, for a whole, whole husbandry. Go get themselves <laughs> a husband. That's what women did. They got married. Everybody got married. Or the only other possibility that was considered real for your life was to be a nun. And we had great nuns. I mean, they were alive, they were, they had faith, they had humor, they challenged our minds uh, and taught us to think, and uh, I mean, I loved them, and I wanted it. I, I knew I always wanted to be a teacher, and, um, and so this was going to be a way. I thought, what could be better than that? And to be able to develop your spiritual life, that I knew I would have time as a nun to go on retreats, to be able to learn to pray, to develop my spiritual life, and I'd be given time for it. And, you know, it's really been borne out in my life that I made a good choice, or it chose me. Um, my sister got married. Within seven years, she had five children. It was a way of the 50s. It was you married, you had children, you were a housewife. Um, I would have made a terrible mother. I think, you know, you'd read the stories. I don't know, did I put this in the book? But, you know, I'm kind of blasé. I got goodwill. I got a big heart. But, you know, I'd be coming home from the grocery store, put my kid on top of the car in a little stroller thing and uh, drive off, and I'd be on the 10 o'clock news. My little dumb child on I mean, I have goodwill. But I, I think I would have made a terrible mother. Um but my sister did that. I, everybody was doing that. And um, except I wanted this life. I wanted the spiritual life. And I wanted to teach. And you know what has happened? It's like my classroom, just with dead men walking and working on the death penalty and going out and talking to the people. Um, I, my classroom just got bigger. That's all. It became I mean, the you world. know, sharing with people. Yeah. yeah, and bringing them, bring them in, into the story to help them deal with this issue, you know, of the death penalty. Well, I have to tell you, honestly, one of the things I enjoyed about the book was the insight into what it was like to become a nun in 1957. You obviously uh, grew through a very interesting time period. Uh, I mean, it, yes. it, it almost seemed like they were trying to remove all your individuality. That was what right. it appeared to be. Tell us about those early days, and then we'll have to see a little bit from your perspective of Vatican II and the impact that had. Yeah, sure. You know, in fact, I, I did this sociological description of what it meant to be a nun. 
uh, in the 50s. You know, first of all, you're wearing a, a medieval garb right after the Middle Ages. You know, we had like five pieces of cloth on my head. We were covered from head to toe in a habit. Um, and then I was never going to have to make another decision in my life. It would all be made for me because the spiritual ideal was to blind obedience. You obey that whatever the superior tells you to do, and that is the holy will of God for you. And so I'd never make another decision. Um, I'd give my life over in the life of obedience. Um, and it was a semi-cloistered life, actually. We would go to teach in the school, but like nuns never ate with the lay teachers. Uh-huh. We had our own dining room. We had our own bathroom. And then, you know, people could visit us in the parlor, but they could never come into the cloistered part. Um, and then Vatican II happened. And Vatican II was just explosive. I mean, it just opened up, especially us as nuns, to the world. It opened up the whole church. It's the only ecumenical council that the Catholic Church ever had where its sole purpose was not to condemn some heresy, but to just look at our life and see how we could connect the gospel of Jesus to what was actually happening in the modern world in a way that was more meaningful. And and nowhere did that apply more than to our life. And so we, in the, the life as a nun before Vatican II, it was to sing up praying and doing penance for the world. Uh, but now it became, what's going on in the world? You know, the documents, we were reading the documents as soon as they were coming out of Vatican II, of the church in the world. And and being there with the joys and sufferings of the people and uh, uh, connecting. And uh, we just blossomed our community. Vatican II happened from 62 to 65, and nobody took it more seriously than nuns. Our community, the Sisters of St. Joseph uh, in Louisiana. And so we took every one of the mandates of Vatican II and had already translated it into a new rule, a new way of living by 1968. So one huge thing that changed was this whole thing of, can it be as simple as knowing the will of God just simply by obeying an authority? Well, what about the spirit that has been given to each of us to discern maybe where God's calling us and what it is we're called to do? And so there was just a real change in the community. And we began to make decisions by consensus and not just coming from on high. So the whole church, you know, has been called to do that. Bishops were to meet together uh, to form decisions by consensus and not just get directives from Rome. And the church was redefined as the people of God. Most people, you can still hear them today when they're mad. They say, I'm so mad at the church. But what they mean is they're mad at some bishop or somebody in the hierarchy, a priest or something. But Vatican II said, no, no, the church is the people. And, you know, I have witnessed, Karen, with this dialogue with my church on the death penalty. It truly is the people who have the experiences on the ground or the ones that go into the death chambers and into the prisons 
then share those experiences and dialogue and it bubbles up and it bubbles up and it bubbles up. And then you have a change because away from, for example, in August 2018, you had Pope Francis declare and change the catechism. For a long, long time, for 1,500 years, you had the church upholding the right of the state to take life. But then you have all these experiences that happen, and then you have reflection, and you have dialogue. And so you have an unfolding of understanding. And uh, to reach a point in 2018 where the church could say officially, under no circumstances, no matter how grievous the crime, the state cannot be given that right to take life. That is always a sign of dialogue. And the people are the ones who do the dialogue. And I was in there. Others, Many others were in there, too. But that's an example of what Vatican II unleashed. Because the spirit is in the people, the people share their experiences, and we change. Well, it, I have to tell you, it was something I loved about your book, was you took me through that journey. And uh, I wasn't... I wasn't anticipating that this would be the case, but it was such it was helpful for me. It brought understanding, and interestingly enough, this book, River of Fire, it brings us right up to the point where Dead Man Walking comes into your life. It's kind of your life journey up to that point, but you also, um, in such an interesting way, take us on this journey of how your world opened up, how your focus changed. You were somebody with a depth of spirituality and clearly you mentioned that you know with Vatican II uh, it called you back to Jesus uh, but uh, I also saw there something of a change. Well it, it called me to understand Jesus in a new way because you know re religion often is can happen as a private kind of thing somebody individually feels close to God but it was that connection with justice and I resisted that at first because I was doing retreats and, you know, I said, look, we're nuns, we're not social workers, all this justice stuff and getting involved with the poor and social change. You know, I didn't, and that was not an automatic thing for me. But again, dialogue within the community, we had these real spirited dialogue. And um, so we had like two camps that formed. I was in the quote, spiritual camp. And then you had the other, quote, social justice camp of getting out there, getting involved with the issues of poverty and race and the whole civil rights movement. And, and, uh, and so then I talk about that moment. Grace wakes us up. There's a sub-theme that just goes through the whole book about awakening. And uh, it's called The Lightning Chapter. And we had this great nun. Her name is Maria Augustine Neal. She's a, a sister of Notre Dame de Namur. For 40 years, she had taught at Boston College. She had taught the New Testament and sociology. So her feet were on the ground. She knew what was happening with people because of the sociology. And we had her for three days and talking to us about the challenge of the gospel and justice. So I wasn't too happy that this, we had to go to this place in Terre Haute and, you know, St. Mary the Woods. The girls were away for the summer. We were in the dorm. And I was kind of grousing all the way on the bus going up. Oh, man, we got three days of this social justice stuff. They're trying to 
get us to be social revolutionaries. And we know if we teach people about God, then they have everything they need. And I'm apolitical. I'm not getting involved with all this political stuff, you know. And then kaboom. And that's how grace happens. And I talk about her talk, her talk about Jesus, her, I can tell you the line. Uh, and I'll put it in the book. And then she said, Jesus preached good news to the poor. And I thought I knew what was coming next. Yeah, yeah, good news to the poor. Every hair of your head is numbered. God loves us more than sparrows uh, in the sky. Uh, and you may have to suffer as a poor person now, but one day your reward will be great in heaven. And she said, good news to people who are poor. The good news is it's not God's will for you to be poor. It's your right, your dignity as a person to strive for what is rightfully yours, to resist this poverty, to resist the injustice. And when she said those words, I sat there, I didn't move physically. I just thought, I have never raised my hand to join in any kind of movement to help people struggling against injustice. And I came from that conference back to New Orleans, started getting on a bus and volunteering in the inner city. There are 10 major housing projects in New Orleans where struggling African-American people live. And I was out in the suburbs. I had never been to any of them. But the first step then was to go to where the people were. And then it opened up step by step. And uh, I had grown up. It's very interesting because this is in a time when there's an awakening, I believe, going on in the country about systemic racism. And the death of George Floyd has really opened that up for us in a whole new way. Um, and I moved into the St. Thomas Housing Projects, having grown up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in the 40s mostly the 40s and 50s, and black people were our servants. They lived on the premises with us in a place called the servants' quarters behind our big two-story house. And here's my daddy. He's a successful lawyer in Baton Rouge, and here we are, a white family. I'm going to a private Catholic school, and Ellen and Jesse. Ellen worked in the house with Mom, and Jesse worked in the yard, and I uh, didn't even know their last names. And they live in the servants' quarters, and they did meet with us, and they had their own toilet, and they never, and never questioned it. And that's I figured as things unfolded for me, and now I'm volunteering at this place called Hope House in New Orleans, and now for the first time, I'm meeting African American people as my peers, as my neighbors, and they teach me. I had never even heard the word white privilege. I didn't know I was privileged simply by being white. And here I'm having all these experiences of what it means to try to survive on a meager welfare check and what it means to have a sick child. I went with Geraldine one night to a charity hospital. Her little son, three-year-old son was sick. It was burning up with a fever. She didn't have a doctor. She didn't have a... She had to go and sit, and I sat with her. We went at 11 o'clock at night. 
holding her little fevered child, 11 o'clock at night till three in the morning. And finally, an intern, some tired intern from LSU or Tulane Medical School, saw her and her child. And it just brought home to me how, oh, it just, it galvanizes you inside. It sets you on fire because you see the suffering of how important health care is. And I was remembering when my little brother Louis got sick with double pneumonia. And uh, and Mama had been a nurse at Our Lady of the Lake Hospital in Baton Rouge and knew the doctors. And Louis got the best health care, and it saved his life. And yeah, when you have a sick child, you don't have health care. And just everywhere I looked, the way the police were treating the young men, people are coming into the adult learning center where I prized education so much, teaching and learning so much. And here's a kid coming in to get his GED, and he had been in the public school, one of the public schools in New Orleans. And I said, well, how far did you get in school before you dropped out? And he said, well, I was a junior. I go, well, look, you only had one more year to go, so let's see where your reading level is, math. And the kid could not read a third-grade reader. He was a junior. And it just struck me, what's going to happen to this black kid who, even if he had gone one other year, probably didn't have a functional reading level? What's going to happen to him? And it just threw me back on the privilege of my life. Why did I get such a good education, you know? So it was just happening every which way. And I also began to learn about human rights, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I'm beginning to meet lawyers that are going into the prison and, and representing poor people. And then all of that, and till the soil. And that last page of River Fires, the first page of Dead Man Walker. And now I'm coming out of Hope House one day, meet a friend who worked in the Louisiana Coalition on Jails and Prisons. Had a little project going on. And said, hey, Sister Helen, you want to be a pen pal to somebody on death row? And I said, sure. And that was the start. Oh, my goodness, what a start. Your book is, is full of honesty, full of the journey that we can be so blind to how fortunate we have been. And then that journey of, I, I love where you say, I'm taking a fresh look at the American dream and who gets to live it. And who doesn't? Yep. And it's not just right. an American dream. It's a it's a Western dream. I would say it exists here in Canada and exists mm -hmm. around the world. But it's it's a mm -hmm. very important thing for us to look at that and understand it. There was a, an old movie. I don't know whether you ever saw it. It's called The Educating of Rita. And I often think about that movie, about that coming of age movie for somebody who is already an adult. And I wondered about who educated you in the issues of social justice. Clearly, this one mm. nun really called you forward. But it sounds to me like some of your education was really coming from the streets and from the people that were becoming your friends. Oh, yeah. Well, once I moved, you know, see, really, uh, River Fire is about breaking out of two bubbles. Mm. And I just want to say the goodness of people, including myself, when we're in a bubble. It's just we really don't know. It's not that we're bad people. We're deliberately and maliciously ignoring poor people or not getting involved. We just really don't know. And we that's why I say grace 
wakes us up. My two bubbles I had to break out of was, one was the spirituality that really thought what I needed to do about all the big problems in the world was simply to pray and to ask God to help the people because these problems are too big for any. And, you know, I had to break out of that. And then the other one was I had to break out of the suburbs and living in this white American, you know, uh, privileged life, separated from people in my own city, partly out of fear, because those are the people you'd see on the 10 o'clock news at night. And in this fear of black people, they're always the ones doing the crime. Look, there they are putting the handcuffs on another black person and t- putting them in the police car. And that fear when you're separated, see. So that waking up that Jesus was going to be on the side of people struggling for justice, and I hadn't been anywhere near that, that integral to following the way of Jesus was to get involved. And it was leaving the suburbs and going to live among the people that the education happened. And what happens to you is it's the seeing of the suffering. That's what really lights the fire, the passion, because that's wrong. What if my mama was holding Louie and didn't get a doctor even to look at him till three o'clock in the morning? I mean, you, you make the connection. This is me. This is us. And I can't walk away from it neutrally. I can't just say I'm neutral. And then that whole thing of I'm um, political. And Maria Garcia, one of the whammies that she got me, it was like she almost knew what I was thinking, was saying, and then when you look at the injustices of the world and you say, well, I'm apolitical, and you don't get involved in any way, you're really supporting the status quo, which is a very political stance to take. So you can't live in a democratic society and just say you're apolitical. Because then you're just upholding whatever it is. I've not thought of that many, many times coming out of an execution chamber that the people are asleep. They're not awake about the death penalty because they're not out there resisting it. But it doesn't mean people are bad. It means they're not awake. But you can't say you're apolitical. You just can't. Well, you can say it, but just recognize that when we're not engaged, in working to help our society to become better, to become a participant in the change, we're really contributing to the problem. We're part of the problem. Can I ask you, to just to, I'm thinking of our audience right now, I'm thinking of myself as well. Where do you put your foot in? Just where do you begin? It's very important. Christians become a force for social transformation. It's important. And this book, I felt... I, I love the fact that you are honest about what, the route it took you. I love the journey. I learned from it. But your honesty was infectious to me. And it I, I would just say, okay, you're now talking to all of us. Tell us where do we step in if we've not been, if we bought into that idea that I'm apolitical or whatever, you know, where do you begin? Yeah, you begin by in your prayer, in your meditation, about that stirring in your own heart of really what you want to do with your life. And when we're not doing enough, when, you know, we're we're bumping along okay, we're doing some nice things, but there's that restlessness we have to listen to. I was, I was made to do something that, 
and then you you can pull put your hand on a rope anywhere you can get involved with children or tutoring children but it always entails that we're going to have to get out of our comfort zone in some way we got to take a journey of some kind physically to go somewhere to go to that meeting on climate change to go to get involved with black lives matter to get involved in some way because we can't do it without community let's just look around you in your city where you are who's doing something and get in there and go physically go visit them talk to them and see how you might get engaged how you might get involved nobody can do that for you hand you okay here's your little list here the here are the places you go there's a certain amount of searching that always has to go on when we when we find our way to do justice in the world and we got to do that so we got to read and we got to go there and you might try it out and it's not for you but you got to go there and you got to try and get involved in some way and you know I found hope is an active verb you know that you can't just want to have hope it's when we get engaged, however small the action, in, in, in getting involved, hope then just courses through us. It happens to us. We don't have to wish for it. And um, so that's, that's what I say. And I get asked that question all the time because I do a lot of talking in university groups, high schools, young people. And, and I say to young people, never let anybody tell you that simply because you're a young person you don't have great power in you to change the world you look at the young people leading on climate change look at that Greta Thunberg, 14 years old and sitting in front of the Swedish parliament on a Friday morning because she had that fire in her heart that our planet is we are losing it and we have to wake up I'm awake I'm going to do this and look at the students also at, at Parkland, at the yes. high school where the shooters had come without gun violence. Any place is a good place to begin. Well, I, I'm inspired. I want to tell our, our listeners that they must come to our conference because you uh, share <laughs> vividly and richly in the conference. That's our June conference. It's called Henry Nouwen and the Art of Living. And uh, one of our keynote speakers is Sister Helen Prejean, and it is such a treat. So I do encourage you. There'll be links to this in, on our website. Oh, yeah, great. I mean, you know what I love? i got to tell you this about Henry Nouwen. You know, one of the great things she says is you can't think your way into a new way of living you got to live your way into a new way of thinking, which means you don't work out all your little blueprint of what you're going to do. You get in there and you get involved. The path is made by walking. You know, you get into the river, you get into the current, and then it's going to take you there. And uh, that was a now and thing. You know, I first met him. Well, I'm going to tell this story, you know, at the, uh, at the conference, uh, how I first met him now and at Notre Dame. So I will let people be part of the conference to hear that story because it was very at first I felt very sorry for him said the poor man he has a kind of lisp or something I mean why does he become a priest I felt sorry for him and then I heard his homily I went oh my god who is that guy and they said well that's 
Henry Nowen. And that began my adventure with Henry Nowen. <laughs> well, you have many adventures going on, but I love your faithfulness to what you do. And I know that you're an advocate for people on death row. And I know that you continue to accompany people. In fact, today, just before doing this podcast with me, you were on the phone with somebody on death row that you speak with regularly. Tell me a little bit about that. Tell me about that journey of accompanying. Oh, my God. His name is Manuel Ortiz. He is going on 29 years on Louisiana's death row, oh. and he is innocent. He, out of the seven people I have accompanied, he's the third innocent one. It is so broken. My second book is called The Death of Innocence. And so when people go to trial for their lives even, and you just see all the things that happened to Manuel. I mean, he actually had a district attorney that went for the death sentence for him and then afterwards represented the victim's family to get the insurance money. I mean, it is there's just so many corrupt things in the criminal justice system. And this man has suffered so much. And he is so brave. And going on 29 years, and now he's in a federal court on appeal. And it's we, we were hoping that the very first federal judge to look at it could see all the things that were unfair that happened in his trial. And the judge didn't see it. And so now he's waiting and waiting and waiting. And uh, he's a lovely man. I call him, you know, my Nelson Mandela because of his suffering and because he's innocent. And uh, so, and then COVID has happened and I haven't been able to visit with him. That, that's really been hard. So every week, set up this phone call, then have email and... Um, so that's who we're talking about with that phone call that happens at one o'clock on every Wednesday. That is faithfulness. That is journeying. You know, that's feet on the road. You're not just writing books, you're living them. And I love that. And I want to say to people, I hope you will get this book. It is honestly a wonderful book, a terrific insight into this journey of the last 70 years, but into the awakening of Sister Helen Prejean, who's honest enough to say where she was in her thinking and what brought her alive in her thinking as a Christian, as a, as a Christ follower, as somebody who has an entirely different attitude about the poor and about the needs of the world that are out there and what she can be a part of. I, I thank you, Sister Helen, and, and I really want to encourage everyone, please sign up for our conference. You would be missing out if you don't get a chance to come to this, and we'll make it available to anyone who wants to come. Uh, you can go to our oh, website, great. and uh, we're, we would be so glad to have you come. It's the anniversary conference because this is the tw it's 25 years since Henry died. So this is yeah. a very important conference and a, a wonderful gathering of people. And uh, I would just encourage Great. everyone. And, and uh, they're in for a treat, Sister Helen, because yes. you you delivered big time. It was great. <laughs> thank you so no, much for look, today. Thank you for doing this. I love talking to you, Karen. Okay, thank you, honey. I love talking to you, too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I hope this conversation with Sister Helen Prejean has ignited a fire in you. I want to invite you to join us for our upcoming conference called Henry Nowen and the Art of Living. Sister Helen is one of our keynote speakers, and you won't want to miss her. 
We also have a wonderful lineup of other speakers. Dr. Vanessa White, Dr. Roberto Goizueta, Sister Simone Campbell, Father Ron Rollheiser, Marjorie Thompson, and Chris Pritchett. There'll be links on our website so you could register for this important 25th anniversary celebration we're holding online on June 4th and 5th. I do hope you'll join us. For more resources related to today's podcast, click on the links on the podcast page of our website. You will find links to anything mentioned today, book suggestions, links to sign up for the conference, or to sign up to receive our free daily Henry Nowen meditations. Thanks for listening. Until next time.